It is good to see everyone. I am especially thankful with the wind outside that we are not outside, that we are inside and it is good. Um, one of the things I love about being inside is just sitting or, or standing and hearing the, you all sing. Um, there's something about being inside. It's just easier to hear each other and that warms my, my soul to sing with the people of God. And so thank you. Thank you for that. A few weeks ago, we talked about our theme for the year, and we said it was undistracted, that we want to be a church that is undistracted about ev- from everything going on around us, and, and we want to keep the main things the main things, which is seeking God and doing His work. And so throughout the year, we're going to be talking about different aspects of that, and we started by talking about the church as a family and what it meant to be family, and how to stand against some of those things that d- can distract from church family. As we come to Titus, we want to talk about what does it mean to live a godly life? And what kinds of things can hinder or distract us from living in godliness or living a godly life? So I'm going to start with just asking a question, a little more interaction, and it's an introduction today, so we get our maps and some of the historical background, get some fun today. But what are some things that can be a distraction to godliness for you? And you don't have to get real deep and personal here, but just generally... What are some things that can distract us from godliness? Money. money. The pursuit of money, not having money, you know, having too much money. <laughs> money. Love of money. Someone else. Schedules and busyness. Those ever get in the way of godliness? Man, I didn't read my Bible today because of my schedule. Or yesterday. Or the day before. Yeah. Schedules, busyness. What else? Freeway traffic. <laughs> when you feel the road rage starting to come, yeah. <laughs> that is a, 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 an incredible test of godliness. Okay, what else can, can be a distraction from godliness? Internet. Yeah. That is, that is really true. I'm just gonna check one thing online. It's three in the morning? What? <laughs> yeah. Give me a couple other things. Because there's a lot. We can have a long list here. It's helpful to just start by thinking this way. Relationships that don't point to God. Absolutely. Bad company corrupts good morals. Um, Relationships that don't point to God can distract us and hinder godliness. There were some other ones. Politics. Yeah, we, t- we, we talked about that a little bit in our class and, and early on. Politics can distract from godliness because it can be very consuming and it is very abrasive and toxic right now in, in many circles. And so politics can distract from godliness. What about the godliness of a church? Last week we talked about testimony. What can, and the testimony of the church, what can distract a church from being a godly church, a healthy church? Scandal can. Scandal. Or disagreement or, or um, conflict that is unresolved, which is why Jesus said, if you know your brother has something against you and you come to worship, go resolve it quickly before you even worship. Other things that can distract from a church from being a healthy, godly church. Gossip. Yeah, we talked about that four weeks ago. Gossip can just tear a church apart. It can tear anyone apart, but it can distract us from, from the main things. One more. 
Worried about numbers. Yeah, if that is all that it's about instead of discipleship, then, then a church starts to make compromises and you start to water down the truth and not be in God's Word. Yeah. And so these things can distract us as a church as well as the list of things you mentioned that can distract us personally from godliness. As we come to this series, Undistracted Godliness, we're going to be studying through the book of Titus. And Titus was facing, as a young pastor, facing a lot of these same issues or or similar types of distractions in the churches that he was leading that Paul had left him to fix. Thank you, Paul. And so he was facing an incredible challenge. Again, as we're going to see, he was, he was Paul's fix-it guy. And, and so he is faced with a church that has all kinds of external distractions. We're going to find out there's some internal distractions too in the church. We're going to find out that people were having distractions. And, and all of these things were keeping them from godliness or were at least hindering godliness. And so the fight was there against distractions and to be godly. And we're going to see throughout the book of, of Titus, in almost every section, Paul deals with some things that hinder and then challenges us to godliness. And so what an appropriate book to go through as we think about how do we be undistracted in this current age, in this current situation, in our lives, in the culture that we're in that is increasingly toxic toward truth and toward Christianity. How do we stay committed to godliness? And so Paul writes this to Titus. I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit because he knows that this young man who's his son in the faith, he knows what he's facing. And he knows that Titus is open to input. That's the kind of relationship they have. And so Paul pens this short book to try to instruct and encourage Titus for how to keep the churches undistracted and focused on godliness. And so this really is a book of how to live godly lives in this present world with all the distractions and temptations. You know, we dare not say that, oh, it's it's just there's so many more distractions now than there were then. There has always been sin. There has always been distractions. They had a whole different list of things to deal with, but at the heart, the sin is the same. And so turn with me to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1. And today we're going to look at the first four verses by way of intro. We're going to pull out a lot of facts, look at some historical background. And and one of the reasons we do this is to try to be an example of how to study the Bible. When you're studying the Bible on your own and you come to a book, first I encourage you to read through books at a time and not just a verse here and a verse there. But study through books. And when you come to a book of the Bible, you want to know a little bit about it. You want to know the setting. You want to know why it was written, who it was written to, some of the background, because all of that helps you understand what you read in a book of the Bible. Because one of the things we know from interpretation is the if it didn't mean, if we don't understand what it meant to the person hearing it, it's very hard for us to understand what it means to us. The Bible never means something that it didn't mean to the people that heard it. And so... So we want to always immerse ourselves in, in what is happening there. And for you, the way you can do that in your study is if you have a study Bible, there's a, usually a half-page introduction to each book of the Bible. That's the greatest place to start. They give you the highlights. You get enough to get the context of the book, and you can understand where you're going with it. 
If you want to go deeper, you grab a commentary. We have a Tyndale series in the library and our resource center. I think we have the MacArthur series. Any commentary will then give you some more details. But that's a little bit of what we're going to do today for Titus because it's that important for our understanding. So we start with Titus 1, 1 through 4, and I want to read all four verses, and then we'll grab different facts out of it, and then we'll grab the themes out of the middle of that. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching which, with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. So the first four verses give us the intro. And it can be real easy to just sort of read past the intro real fast. I already know Paul wrote it, and I already know it's to Titus, and so we're good. But Paul's, especially Paul's, his, his introductions almost always give you kernels of what you're going to see. It's sort of like a trailer of the book. And so you're going to get little scenes of what's going to happen, of the themes that are coming. He does an excellent, and in this case, he hits almost every theme that he's going to hit in these four verses, as well as gives us some of the details of the book. So don't skip over these things. Dig into them, and there's a richness, even in, in Paul's introductions, because it's inspired by the, word of, by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has, has breathed into Scripture God's words. And so we look at the vitals of Titus, and the first thing we look at is the author, and I've already said it many times, Paul is the one writing this, Paul the Apostle, and he describes himself, right, I love that in, in ancient letters, they just say who it's from right from the start. They don't have to thumb to the end and, and find out who it's from. Um, so we know it's from Paul. And look at the description he gave of himself. A servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. And what he's doing here, to Titus, his son in the faith, he is, is, he is writing with the authority of an apostle and the humility of a servant. And so these are chosen very specifically because they show authority with humility. He could have just said, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ, do it this way, case closed, we're done. But that isn't how Paul led, and that's not how godly leaders should lead. He's leading as a servant, a servant of God. And so you see this humility that says, I'm under God, and I'm serving him. Everything is about serving him. And so out of that, we see that Paul would do just about anything for God. No task was too small. He would make tents. He would work wherever. And also that translated then he would do anything for the people he was trying to reach. I am all things to all men in order that some may be saved. And so we see this this servanthood and apostleship together. Just sort of a, a side note, as you, as you dig into this, there's some just hidden, hidden nuggets here. Paul describes himself as a servant of God. This actually is the only book that he uses that phrase, servant of God. In Philippians and Romans, he used servant of Christ Jesus. And so by implication, and this was written after those two, by implication, he is, he is equating servant of God and servant of Christ Jesus. He sees them as the same. And so it, that's just a, a little, just a little jewel here where we see part, part of the Trinity. 
two parts of the Trinity here. So the author is Paul. We jump down to the end, verse 4, and we see who it's to. To Titus, my true child in a common faith. And what that means is that Titus probably came to know the Lord under Paul's preaching, under Paul's ministry, possibly on one of the, the earlier missions trips. Titus was a Gentile, and he came to know the Lord. And, and we know that this is a spiritual child because it, my true child in a common faith. And so we know that uh, just some things about Titus, because Titus is a fascinating man. Titus actually accompanied Paul to Jerusalem at one point. In Galatians 2, we see that he goes to, to Jerusalem with Paul. Peter, James, and John are there. And um, Paul is a, they are affirming Paul's ministry to the Gentiles and giving their stamp of approval. Titus is standing with Paul sort of as evidence. Look at what God is doing in the Gentiles. At the same time, Paul argues that Titus doesn't have to be circumcised and they're, they're dealing with that whole controversy. And so um, that, that's one of the first places we see Titus. What's interesting is we don't see Titus a lot in Acts, but we see him in some of the letters. A letter that we see his name often in is 2 Corinthians. And if you remember studying the, about the church at Corinth, they had issues. They had issues in 1 Corinthians. They dealt with some of them. They had issues in 2 Corinthians. And so what's interesting is Paul chose Titus to be the man to be his representative to the church at Corinth. Here's my toughest church. Hey, Titus, I have a job for you. But what does that tell you about Titus? He's a trusted man. It also tells you that he can combine truth and tact to, to handle difficult situations probably better than anyone else Paul had. And so Titus serves as Paul's representative to the church at Corinth. One of his jobs was to help collect the poor believers in Jerusalem that the church at Corinth had been saving. You can read about that in 2 Corinthians 8. Now, again, you're sending them into a, a difficult situation already. Lots of conflict, lots of issues. And now you're telling him to ask for money. This, I I want you to see the kind of man Titus is. He's trusted. It also means trusted with finances. He's a man of integrity. He's trusted to do the right thing by the faith, but he's also trusted to do the right thing with his actions. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 8, 16, we see that he was held in high repute of all the churches there because of his character because of his dedication let me just read a couple passages out of second corinthians to help us see who titus is second corinthians 7 13 through 16 therefore we are comforted and besides our own comfort we rejoice still more at the joy of titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all for whatever boast about him about for whatever boast i made to him about you I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. Basically, you've lived up to the, what we said about you, and he's lived up to what we said about him. But catch this. And his affection for you, he's writing to the church of Corinth, Titus's affection for you is even greater. And he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. And so we see even in this difficult situation, it was a successful mission. 
Titus goes and, and he, he loves the people, he teaches truth, and he's able to resolve some of the things that are happening in Corinth. In 2 Corinthians 8, the very next chapter, but thanks be to God who put into the, the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. So Titus, in dealing with good, difficult situations with truth, also is described as a man who cared deeply for them. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. Basically, Paul is saying, you know, he didn't, he's not just going because I told him he had to. He's going because he wants to be with you. A little bit later, as for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. And so we see Titus as a trusted co-worker of Paul, trusted enough and with enough integrity to go to the most difficult situations. He was a man of integrity to teach, to build churches, to handle problems, and even to handle money. Now, now I say that and I, I focus on that a little bit because this week we've seen what, what can happen when a church leader or someone that professes faith in Christ is not a man of integrity when someone falls and does not walk closely with God. And, and, and to me, the contrast of Titus, who did it so well and was trusted so well and turned two very difficult situations around for Christ and still walked with Christ and still was a man of integrity, we need good examples when we see on the news really horrid examples. But it's a reminder to us that church leaders, any of us who are leading, We must be men and women of integrity. Because if we're not men and women of integrity and men and women who walk close to God, Satan will use us to harm the testimony of the church. And we watched that agonizingly play out this week. Not in our church local, but in the church international. And so men and women, how is your accountability? How is your transparency? How is your walk with God? It is of prime importance that we are men and women of integrity. That our teaching matches our actions, which is what integrity means. There is a oneness to it and not a hypocrisy. So Titus was thrown into this hard task of building a church that was distracted from false teaching They were distracted from external opposition. They were distracted by internal opposition. They were distracted by bad leadership and temptation. Think about that list. False teaching, internal opposition, external opposition, bad leadership and temptation. That might distract you from godliness. Any one of those would. And that's the churches that Titus is trying to to continue to plant. They're new churches Paul had just planted them. He had left Titus to finish the job and to help them stand against a very difficult culture. And because Titus walked close to God and was an example of godliness, God built his church through Titus. He built his church through the wisdom he had given Titus, the strength of character he had given Titus, through his leadership, through his tact, through his care. And so we come to this book where Paul the mentor is writing to his troubleshooter. He's writing to his fixer to try to give input and to try to give insight as to help the church. 
some historical background just to give us sort of a, a taste of, of where this falls into history. Because if you read through the book of Acts, you never find Crete, the island of Crete, where they are, or where, where Titus is, you never find that on a missionary journey. And so through a lot of clues, through 1 Timothy, Titus, 2 Timothy, and that's probably the order they were written in, through some clues there, some clues at the end of Acts, we can sort of piece together what we think possibly happened. And we don't have an exact travel log in this case, but we know from Scripture that Paul had visited Crete, and we know that he had left Titus there. And so to give sort of a, to, to backtrack just a little bit, we come to the end of Acts. We're at Acts 27, and Paul has just finished his third missionary journey. He was arrested in Jerusalem, okay, and then went through some, some trials there, then was taken to Caesarea on the coast and met before Herod Agrippa and pleaded his case, finally appealed to Caesar. I think we have a map because we have to have maps on these days. And so just to give an idea, so let me make sure this is on. Up here is a cutout of Crete, which is down here. To give sort of a a bigger picture, you see the boot here. So what's the boot? Italy, good, okay. Greece is here. You have Asia Minor here. And over here is Israel, okay. Down here is Jerusalem, where some of you can walk with us in November. Please come. Um, And then, so Paul was arrested here taken to Caesarea, and in the process of being at Caesarea in some of these trials, he appeals to, to Rome. He says, you know what? I want to go to Rome. I want that to be where my trial is. Where's Rome? Rome's over here. So now they've got to get him from Caesarea on the coast to Rome up here. And so the way you do is by ship. And so they take off from Caesarea, and they're going through the Mediterranean Sea, and it's getting close to winter. And they're almost at winter, and so they come near the island of Crete, and they end up coming to Fairhavens here, um, this, this particular um, bay or, or harbor. Now, that, that much we have all in Acts 27. I encourage you to, to read that. So Paul's on a ship. Don't think cruise ship. Don't think huge ships like we have or carrier or destroyer or something. These are not big ships, and, and so the storms of the Mediterranean Mediterranean can really wreak havoc on them. He is a prisoner being taken to Rome. And so as they go, uh, um, come, come back to a little bit more in order. Um, sorry, a couple things were out of order. As they're going, when they're in fair havens, winter is starting to set in. And the captain of the boat says, you know what, this is not a good place to weather the winter. In fact, we have a picture of Fairhavens today. This is Fairhavens Harbor today. Looks nice, but the challenge is the opening to the harbor happens to be the direction that the winter winds come in off the Mediterranean Sea. And so this is a lousy place. If you still want your ship at the end of winter, it's a lousy place to stay the winter. So if we can go back to the map. So the captain says... We're going to go over to Phoenix here because that bay is actually turned the other way. It protects from the easterly winds. And Paul says, don't. Don't go. It's not going to go well if you do. Um, The captain and and the people that know better um, said, you're wrong. And so they head out to Phoenix, okay? They never get there. 
as they're on their way, a huge storm comes up. And we see in Acts 27, 28, we see the things that they went through. They start getting rid of cargo. They, they are 14 days through this storm. And so you would think, oh, it blew them off course somewhere. No, to get a picture, where they ended up was out here in Malta. So they, they, they made time in, in 14 days. They ended up shipwrecking here, running aground, and, and you can read about that in Acts. And so this was Paul's first visit to Crete, though. This was not a missionary journey. Make sense? He was a prisoner. He didn't get to go plant churches. But I think this is a little bit of, of, of you know, divine, not divine imagination, but a holy imagination where we can think through some of this stuff. I think he started to have a heart for Crete there. Because he saw the people and, and perhaps started thinking, I'm going to go back there someday. So he ends up being taken to Rome. He's under house arrest in Rome for a little while, early, early 60s AD. And that's where Acts ends. And we have to start piecing things together from there. And it looks like he was eventually released from house arrest at Rome. And so, so we usually will say there was a first imprisonment in Rome and a second imprisonment in Rome. So what did he do in between? Because he didn't just hang out in Rome. This was a man that was all about action and the gospel. And how can we, we share the gospel? And as we look at some clues in 1 Timothy, Titus, and 2 Timothy, it looks as if he had a fourth missionary journey of sorts. Um, he went on another tour through towns and started to um, plant churches. In here might be, if he made it to Spain, might be where he made it to Spain. But it really looks like in that time between his Roman imprisonments, the second one leading to his death, he came down to Crete and spent some time at the churches of Crete, uh, planting the churches of Crete. It looks as if Titus was with him, as we'll see, because the, the verses um, we're, we're going to find out in verse 5, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you may put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So on this fourth missionary journey, Paul moves on. He has churches to plant, people to see. And he leaves Titus to organize them, finish planting them, because they are under severe distraction from outside sources. The culture made church planting here hard. In, in verse 12 of chapter 1 of Titus, one of the Cretans, so, so one of their people, one of their own people said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Well, that sounds like the place to start a church. Actually, it does. That's the people that need Jesus. And so Paul plants a church there. That's the kind of thing, the culture, though, that Titus is fighting. And so that's the background of this letter. Paul has moved on. Probably isn't in Rome yet for his, his second imprisonment, but he's moved on and he's writing Titus to say, here's some ideas. Here's some suggestions. You're in a tough task, but let me mentor you a little bit. Let me help you as you work through that. And so the purpose of Titus is to help equip Titus to continue the church plants on the island of Crete and to combat the false teachings threatening these churches. It's to help equip Titus to continue to the church plants on the island of Crete and to combat the false teaching threatening these churches. And so throughout it, we're going to see warning of some of the things that he needs to fight against. Warning against the false teachings. Warning against some of the distractions. 
we're going to see the description of what a healthy church looks like because he's trying to plant healthy churches. And, and so in these three short chapters, you could almost call this a postcard rather than a letter because it's so short. It is rich, though, in instruction about godly living and what the church should look like. Like I said, it's one of three pastoral epistles, um, First Timothy, First and Second Timothy and Titus. And they were probably written in that order. First Timothy, and then Paul went on through Crete and was, was at a town later in that um, journey. And that's when Titus would have been written. And then Second Timothy, the last book Paul wrote, would have been written from Rome as he was facing his execution. And so that's the time frame of what we're looking for. Date, mid-60s. We don't know exactly because, again, we don't have a travel log. But it's the mid-60s. And probably, like I said, after his his release from house arrest the first time and before his second imprisonment in Rome. A good way to think about the, the letter of Titus is this is a personal letter to a friend of how to help the church. Most of Paul's epistles we're used to were letters written to the church. This one was written as a personal letter to help the church, but it is still incredibly helpful for us and essential for us to study as we pursue godliness. Five themes are going to come out as we, we study Titus. And again, I love thinking through themes because then we get a bigger picture, right? You get, a, you get an overall view of what to look for. Titus is probably one of the easier books to pick themes because Paul just keeps repeating some of the same things with different nuances and, and different takes on it. But the themes are all there. The first theme we're going to see is to pursue godliness. Pursue godliness it is the outgrowth of your salvation. And, and Paul, is going to, Paul is going to express the in theological terms that true faith and salvation will result in godly living. And so there's an order there. There's a sequence. And he's saying you can't divorce godly living. You can't divorce how we act from what we believe. If we believe Christ has saved us and if he has actually saved us, it will affect how we act. In many ways, there's some similarities to James as we see that. Look at verse 1. And so we, we jump back to this, this introduction and we see some of these themes start to take form here. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. And that for the sake of is for the purpose of. He is a servant and an apostle, so that way people will come to faith and knowledge of the truth. And so for the sake of the faith of God's elect, those that God has chosen, those that are part of the church that have accepted him and their knowledge of the truth. But then the very next phrase is, this is the sequence we're going to see all throughout the book, which accords with godliness or literally which, which flows into godliness or which results in godliness. So right from verse one, he's hitting this theme of godliness flows from salvation and your faith and your knowledge of the Bible. True faith and salvation will always result in godly living. And so this is an admonition to live out our faith through godly lives, to live out sound doctrine. In fact, look at verse 1 of of chapter 2. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And he's literally saying, teach what flows out of sound doctrine. So it's great to have your head right, right? It's great to know God's word, but if we don't let that translate into practice, we don't really know God's word. 
And I think throughout Scripture, if it never gets to practice, we'd have to question whether we're saved, whether we have a changed, sanctified heart. And so Paul here is instructing Titus, so that faith will grow in the church, so that truth will go in the, in the church, but also that their everyday living will show devotion to God, that those things will lead to godliness. And that's a great definition of godliness, that their everyday way of living shows a devotion to God. Every day, not just Sundays, every meeting, every inner encounter, everything shows devotion to God. And that's godliness. And so these are linked. Faith and godliness are always linked. And, and again, I think that's where we saw and when we see Christian leaders fall, it's because their, their knowledge, their head knowledge hasn't been connected with the outgrowth and with how their lives are. And there's a disconnect there that is usually from pride. And pride can be a distraction that keeps us from living godly lives while we know so much of what we should do. Brian Chappelle and Kent Hughes in their commentary write, when the message of the gospel comes unglued from godliness, faith shatters. Let me repeat that. When the message of the gospel comes unglued from godliness, faith shatters. You can't have one without the other. We never get so mature in our Christian walk that we don't have to worry about godliness anymore. Check, that was done. Got that, got that accomplished. No. We're to pursue godliness. And that's, a prime, that's the primary theme of the book of Titus. Second theme, which I've already mentioned, sort of goes with it. Eliminate distractions. Eliminate distractions that hinder you from living for God. Anything that keeps you living from living godly lives in the church and individually. And he's going to hit both of those. He's going to hit the false teachers. He's going to hit issues of personal sin. He's going to hit issues of other priorities other than God. But the first theme is to pursue godliness. Second theme is to eliminate distractions. Third theme, which we haven't touched on this morning, but we're going to see it come out in in a number of of paragraphs. Live in hope. Expecting Jesus' return. Live in hope, expecting Jesus' return. And so, so we get some eschatology in this book as we look forward to Jesus' return. And we're going to explore what does that mean? Does it affect our godliness knowing that Jesus could return today? I hope so. It should. If we're looking forward to that, that, that affects how I live for Christ and, and whether I put a priority on living for Christ. If, if Jesus isn't coming back for a thousand years... Man, I got time to do what I want. But I should be living in light of his imminent return. And so Paul's going to remind Titus of that. He's going to remind Titus of the hope that comes from that, especially in these difficult situations that he's putting Titus in, to remind that there's a hope of eternal life. And, and in verse 3, we see this, or in verse 2, rather, we see this come out. In hope of eternal life which God who never lies promised before the ages begin. And so Paul here in in this verse is referring to the future we have, that our future is secure. Later in the book, he's going to tie that in with the glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior. And so we're going to see that tied together with Jesus' return. Both are an eye to the future saying, am I living in light 
of the future promise that I have. And I love that phrase, in hope of eternal life. Because the idea there is sort of this, this rest. And in fact, some translations will, will use rest as part of this. But resting in the hope of eternal life, it's sort of like, oh, I just don't have to worry as much about what's going on. Because I know what's coming. I know that Jesus has died on the cross and paid for my sins. And he rose again, defeating sin. And just as he rose again, I know I will be raised with him and I will be with him for all eternity. I'll live in that truth. Live in that promise. Knowing that future gives us strength for today. And so whereas we might think of thinking of the future and our eternal life and the return of Jesus as as distinct from godliness, I think it's part of what empowers godliness. Our hope is built on the frame of our godliness and, and of salvation. And our hope is sure. It says, in hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages began. Before any molecule of this planet was made, God knew that Jesus would secure our salvation on the cross. Isn't that cool? It wasn't an afterthought. We can be sure that this is true because this was God's plan and God's plans always come to fruition. And so rest in this. Paul is encouraging Titus with that. God never lies. He's planned this from the beginning. He will do it. He is faithful. Fourth theme that we're going to see in Titus. Sometimes I try to get too, too into the themes, realize we're going to study all these. Fourth theme in Titus is to disciple and be discipled. Train others to live godly lives. So not only live godly lives ourselves, but we're to be training others to live godly lives. Disciple and be discipled. It's interesting in verse 3 that, that Paul's talking about his ministry that at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior to Titus, my true child in the common faith. And verse 3 there is a reference to Jesus' life. It's a reference to the gospel that this hope became visible when Jesus was incarnated. And so it was manifested through his word, through the gospel, and that's the message that Paul's been preaching. But to preach, you usually need someone to preach too. Otherwise, you're just talking to yourself in a room, and that's sort of weird. But Paul is preaching and training people, and in this case, he's training Titus. We see discipleship happening. He's been entrusted with the message in verse 3, and so he passes that on to Titus, his true child in the common faith. I mean, don't miss the, the imagery there. This is an example of discipleship, uh, of passing on. It's a hint of what's going to come. True child in a common faith means genuine. He's a genuine believer. The whole letter, in fact, if we had to think of the whole letter as Titus, the whole letter is mentoring. The whole letter is an older pastor mentoring a younger one. It's discipleship. It's an example of discipleship. And then in case you're wondering if that's really a theme, we get all of chapter 2, where the older are to teach the younger, and we see an explicit command 
for the church to do the same thing that Paul did to Titus. So our actions portray the gospel and Christianity to others. We teach others in that way. And in chapter 2, we're going to see Paul expand that, not just to other believers, but we are actually at the first stages of discipleship with non-believers by our actions and by what they see through our testimony. So theme number four, disciple and be discipled. And then finally, theme number five that we're going to see is be a healthy church that prioritizes living for God. Be a healthy church that prioritizes living for God. We're going to see Titus give a picture of what a healthy church looks like, especially in chapter one. He's going to talk about church governance and what works in church governance and leadership, what doesn't work in church governance and leadership. He's going to deal with how the family should relate to each other, how we teach each other. Again, what's Titus doing? He's, he's continuing church plants. And so Paul says, here's a manual. Here's some things that those church plants should cover of what a healthy church looks like. And so five themes that we're going to see in this little tiny book. Pursue godliness, eliminate distractions, live in hope of eternal life, disciple and be discipled, and be a healthy church. If we had to boil everything this morning down to a main point, live out your salvation through godly, Christ-showing lives in this fallen, distraction-filled world. This book challenges us to live out our salvation through godly, Christ-showing lives in this fallen, distraction-filled world. Undistracted godliness. It's going to be a good book. It's going to challenge us. It's going to step on our toes a little bit. It's going to make sure we're keeping the main things the main things but our church will be healthier because of it. I want to end with Titus 2, 11 through 12, which I, I would say is one of the theme verses of this book that gets a lot of those themes together. Titus 2, 11 and 12. I think I have it for you on the screen as well. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. So there's the salvation that Jesus has come, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. What a marvelous verse that just covers that. Living out our salvation through godly Christ-showing lives in this fallen, distraction-filled world. See, it's easy to drift. It's easy to be distracted. It's easy to lose sight of the main things and not intentionally have godliness as our priority. I'd like to end by reading something from D.A. Carson from the book For the Love of God. And he, he writes this. People do not drift toward holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, obedience to Scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift toward compromise and call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience and call it freedom. We drift toward superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped the legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves we have been liberated. Wow. 
Let's be intentional to not drift toward ungodliness, but to be intentional to pursue holiness, to pursue godliness in an undistracted way. Let's pray. Lord God, our Father, may we not just drift in our Christianity. May we not just coast. Oh, I'm there on Sundays. I'm good to go. But Lord, challenge us as a church through this book to be a church that is sold out to you, that puts a priority on godliness and that seeks out distractions to eliminate them. To not let anything hinder our application of your word, our dedication to your word, our our exercise of your word. Lord, I pray for the next nine weeks that you do a work in our church to godliness. In your precious name.